You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. Used to works with a whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for these agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another. So, they are not, so you are not to do whatever you want, but, if you are led by the Spirit, but you are led by the Spirit and not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, enviness, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified in the flesh, and have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. You may be seated. So last week, we decided to take a look at what it means to bring revival to not just faith church, but to the kingdom of God. And as we're looking at this series, Now What?, we ask ourselves this question, well, now what? After we learn who Christ is, after we learned about hope, peace, joy, love, and yes, of course, Christ, now what do we do with this knowledge that we have? And last week, we talked about the parable of the talents. We talked about investing not in just yourselves, but investing in each other, investing the resources that you have to not only build the kingdom of God, but plant the seed for the kingdom of God to grow, for the kingdom of God to become exactly what it's supposed to be. And so going out and planting things is, is extremely important. Evangelism is extremely important, not just for faith church, but for the church at large. And we talked about this last week, that revival is not something that we can count. As much as we love Chris Marks, her book is not the same as the Lamb's Book of Life. When she takes attendance on Sunday mornings, that doesn't determine who is saved and who is not saved. What determines who is saved and who is not saved is those who have had the word planted by people who are faithful enough to plant it. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a five, if you're a five-talent guy with a multi-million dollar church, or if you're a small church on the corner, or if you're just a mother teaching your children. You are instilling and you are planting things that are going to be building the kingdom of God. Even when you pour into a small child, or if you pour into hundreds of thousands of people on every Sunday morning. See, God has instilled us with different treasures. God has instilled us with different abilities, and God has instilled us and entrusted us to different people. And so, in this process, we just 
learned about how important that investing is, and this is a new goal that we've been talking about. And if you read the Bible for any amount of times, you will know that the Bible writers speak in agrarian terms. Um, my friend Dan is here unexpectedly <laughs> this morning, but um, I'm sure that he would agree since he is a pastoral ministry major that we could probably run a farm on all of the agriculture knowledge that we have gained just from reading the Bible alone. I mean, every image that they give about the church has something to do almost with a farm. We have um, the Gentiles being grafted on to things. We have cutting of the wheat. We have the planting. Um, but, we are going to, but what we are going to be talking about is the planting, the growing, the plowing, and the cutting, all of that like. And we're going to be talking about how it applies to us and how it applies to the concept of reformation. See, other times we are depicted um, this co-action between God, that sometimes God is the person that is in the fields, that sometimes God is the person that is in the farm, that sometimes God is the person that is in the vineyard, and sometimes we are the ones that are there. There's this co-action when it comes to building the kingdom of God. Jesus did say that he will build his kingdom, but he also wants to include us in on that. And I think that Paul put it beautifully when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 7. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. God can grow without water. God can grow without our efforts in revival. God can grow without our efforts in reformation, but God wants us to plant. God wants us to water. God wants us to be a part of this. God wants Faith Church, but he wants every other church on the block as well. God doesn't just want the EC church. God also wants the Lutherans. God also wants the Presbyterians. God also wants the non-denominational. And the sooner that we recognize that the church is a big kingdom and it's not a small kingdom, that the church encompasses all of the believers in Christ, the sooner that we realize that we're not the enemy of the EC church up the road, or that we're not in competition, but actually we are trying to plant so that others might water. We're trying to water what others have planted. Then we'll be able to actually become the people that God has desired us to be. When people talk about having your best life now, Oftentimes, it has to talk about health. It has to talk about getting the right amount of money. It has to talk about all these different worldly things. Getting a wife. It has to talk about getting pleasure, avoiding suffering in everyday circumstances. But the actual way to live your best life now is to become reformed. And this theory is something that um, I need to go a little bit into depth with. It's important that when I speak of Reformation that I'm not talking to you about Luther and Calvin. Right? When we're talking about Reformation, a lot of people will say, okay, so we're talking, we're, this is going to be like an anti-Catholic sermon. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, I'm not focusing on Luther and Calvin as a historical situation or historical events. I'm focusing on the object of their affection. See, because the whole prospect of what Luther and Calvin were arguing for, and if you're unfamiliar with what Luther and Calvin did, I'll bring you up to speed. Luther and Calvin were a part of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church has had some problems in their past, and especially at Luther and Calvin's time, there were people that were selling indulgences, essentially buying tickets to heaven, buying hellfire insurance, as one of my professors would like to say. And so, these two men looked at this system and saw that the people around them were completely sinful. Luther actually went to Rome, and he was expecting to see a city full of monks. This is a quote from Luther. I expect to see a city full of monks. Instead, I see a city full of prostitutes and sin. And so he worked on reforming the people. He worked on watering the seeds that had already been planted by the Catholic Church, changing things up for the glory of God. 
And so when I'm talking about Reformation, I'm not talking about Luther and Calvin's history, but I am talking about their goal. And whether you agree to everything that Luther or Calvin says, which I do not, I agree with some stuff, I don't agree with everything, and so you might find yourself there too. But what we might all agree with is their goal. Their goal to escape systems and slumps of sin in the kingdom of God and to nourish God's people with the living water that Christ had supplied on the cross, that Christ was talking about in his gospel. It doesn't matter what denomination you belong to, this can be beautiful. And the reason why I have to say all this stuff is because I don't want Pastor Breck coming back tomorrow and being like, so I leave for two weeks and now my church is Lutheran. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we can all get on board with the fact that we want to be a little bit more like Christ. We can all get on board with the fact that last week we talked about planting seeds. Last week we talked about investing our resources. And this week we're talking about watering. This week we're talking about growing ourselves and growing others who already have the word of God in them. They understood what it was thought to bring the words of life. And we, they understood what it was to nourish people. But what I would like to walk us through in this passage of Galatians 5.9 is... Do we know how? And this is the question that will come up on the screen. How can we know that we're truly walking in the Spirit? How can we know that we're being nourished properly? How can we know that we're being watered properly? And the next thing that I, I wanted to show up, I'm sorry, these slides are going to go quick, but the first thing that we must understand is that, when we, that we walk in the Spirit and not in the law. And I will, I'll get to that, but Galatians 5, 9 through 12 says this. So we walk in the Spirit, but not in the law. And it says, Galatians 5, 9 through 12, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Emasculate themselves. So I know that every time that I get up here, I say something somewhat uncouth, um, but the Bible says some stuff that's pretty uncouth, and so I figure anything that's in the Bible is fair game. So if you don't know what emasculate yourself means, it essentially means that you're going to become a eunuch rather than just circumcision, and circumcision was a part of the Old Testament which would essentially purify you, you if you were a Jew. You would take um, a part of your flesh, I'll, I'll try to keep it PG, and you would remove it from yourself. So it would be like taking off your pinky. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, don't just take off your pinky, take off your entire hand. Um, but instead of a pinky and a hand, he's talking about the parts that allow you to reproduce. He's saying, I don't want you to reproduce anything. And the reason why he's saying this is actually very interesting. See, Paul is essentially saying that it would be good for them not to reproduce, but he's also saying something because of the very fact that what they are doing is similar, what they are doing is similar to what pagans did. Pagans didn't circumcise each other. Pagans became eunuchs for their gods. They completely got rid of any chance of them reproducing. So Paul is not just insulting them, saying, you should not reproduce. You know, we all know that one person that we look at and we're like, you should not reproduce. Paul is looking at these people and saying, not only should you not reproduce, but you should go the entire way because you're acting wrongly. You're acting sinfully. You're acting, not only this, and this is going to come up on the screen, it says, Paul warns us that to believe that works, to believe in a works-based life and salvation is not just a false theology, but it's an entirely false religion. 
See, at this time, the people were being told that they needed to be circumcised to obey Jewish purity laws to be saved by Christ. So you had Gentiles. You had people that were believing in Artemis. You had people that were believing in um, just all of the Greek gods, all of the Roman gods at that time, people believing in the gods of Egypt. Um, and they were coming and being grafted into the kingdom of God. People were going out and planting these seeds, but as they were planting these seeds, the people that were responsible to water those seeds were saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't be living that way. You can't be not doing these things. You need to be circumcised. You need to be eating the proper foods that are in the Jewish religion. You need to be living by these purity laws. And not only is this something that Jesus didn't teach, but this is something that's actually contrary to the gospel of grace. This idea that we can attain perfect purity and salvation through the law is impossible, it's unlivable, and it lacks an understanding of God's intention through the law. Amber, raise your hand. This is my student, Amber. She's the only one here today, so I get to pick on her. Amber, I, I love Amber because me and Amber have a running joke that if she's late, she has to read through Leviticus, or at least one chapter. And the reason why Leviticus is such a hard chapter to read is because it's law after law after law after law. It's long, it's drawn out. Amber cannot stand having to read it whenever I tell her, you're gonna read Leviticus today. Well, the point of that is, the point of the law is, one of the points, and we'll get back to the other point of the law, but one of the points of the law is to show the fact that you cannot be saved by the law. It actually says it up there. To walk in the Spirit does not mean to reject the law, but to understand that the law brings condemnation instead of life. When you look at the law, you shouldn't look at it and feel completely good about yourself. If you're looking at the law and you feel like you fulfill all of it, I think you might be a little delusional because there are things that are in the law that just happen naturally. And there are things that God is saying that this is for my holiness and that you can't be with me unless if you fulfill this. And all of us have sinned at least once in our lives. There is none righteous in the entire world. And so if you were to say that this law doesn't condemn you, but this law gives you life, that by fulfilling this, that you can actually earn your way into heaven, you're missing the entire point of it. The point of the exhaustive lists is almost to show you, it's it, to teach you, it's to show you the fact that I cannot save myself. I cannot measure up to the holiness that God requires to be in community with me. The purpose of the law is to show us that there is no way that we can be holy or righteous. In fact, there's none righteous in the world apart from those who have righteousness given to them by the grace in Christ. Any other belief, while seemingly small indifference, crumbles the Christian belief entirely. It's like what Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So Jewish people believed in eating unleavened bread. Um, they believed that the leaven inside of it, for um, some reason that I'm sure Dan would be able to explain to you, <laughs> um, that the leaven actually has some sort of sinful aspect to it. It's been used as an analogy for sin in a lot of different things. And when he's talking and he says a little leaven leavens the whole bread, he's essentially saying if you sin once, then you are not, you're disqualified. You can't, you are condemned by the law. Even if there are a thousand different things in Leviticus and a thousand different things in Numbers and Deuteronomy that say this or say that, and you do 999 of them, but you don't do one of them, you are condemned. You stand condemned. You stand condemned already if you don't believe in Christ, even if it's just the one thing. 
But do we not do this to each other? When we look at each other, when we look at the way that we live our lives, we can look at all of these people and we say, of course, that makes sense. Why are we holding people to Jewish standards if this is the new Christian religion? We look at these old Jews like, oh, they're just stuck in their ways. But how many times do we hold each other and ourselves to standards out of a belief that we're going to win God's approval? Out of a belief that somehow God will love us more if we do something and God loves us less if we don't. It may be outrageous, but sometimes the reason why we do things differently in church than when we do them outside of church is, be, is not because we love God, but it's because we hope to earn his love. And that is an important distinction, and that's everything. That's the whole distinction. And we might not say it outright. We might not think that the reason why we don't do this at church, but we'll do it outside of church is because of a, just a feeling. We, we feel like this is a sacred place or something like that, but honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, we're misunderstanding his love. We're thinking it has to be earned. His love cannot be gained. It can't be earned, and his love is freely giving, and it never diminishes or increases. God's grace tells us that he loves us so much that he sent Christ to die for all. And when Christ died for all, Christ died for all. He died for the people whose sins that you actually are not sympathetic for. And there are people whose sins you are unsympathetic for. I'll give you mine so then you don't have to give me yours. I am unsympathetic for adultery. I am unsympathetic for um, murder. I feel unsympathetic for some of those sins. You know, I look at those people and I honestly, my heart doesn't bleed for them the way that it ought to. But my heart aches for people that struggle with secret sin. My heart aches for people that hide their sin. My heart aches for children who are products of sin. And while God's grace tells us that God had died, that Christ had died for all, even those whose sins you are not sympathetic for, God's law also tells us that those sins place Christ up on the cross, even the sins that seem justifiable to us. Even the sins that we say, well, that's not really a sin. What do you mean? I mean lying. <laughs> I mean the fact that how many of us can honestly say that in, within the past two weeks, yes, during the holidays, we didn't tell a single lie the entire time to any of our family, even that one family member that's really pressing, that one family member that really wants to get to know you a little bit and you didn't tell any lie at all. See, what God is saying is that that break of the law caused Christ to get up on the cross, even though that might seem justifiable to us. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is above not just our, God is not just above us, but he's above our understanding of right and wrong. He's above our justification. It's not us who has brought justice and who understood justice and applied it to God, but it is God's standard who applies justice to us. It is God who, in, who invented justice. It is God who invented righteousness. It's God who is holiness. The only reason we know anything about it is because God had it first. But the second thing that we need to understand is not necessarily just the condemnation of the law, but we need to understand that we have been called to walk in the Spirit as its way is revealed through the law. In Galatians 5, 13 through 15, it says, you are, one, you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And this seems great. You know, at first glance, if you feel a little condemned by reading the whole you know, sin thing, if you feel condemned by reading that whole law, you know, a lot of what I was just talking about seems very condemning. It seems very worrying. If I break one of the 1,556 laws, then I'm going to hell. And this seems like we're given freedom. We're able to go and do whatever we want. It's okay that we break 99 of those laws. It's okay that we do whatever we want to do, but that's not what Paul is saying. We do have freedom. We do have choice. And this seems like an opportunity for a hellfire insurance. This seems like an opportunity to sin up until Paul wrote that our freedom is not an opportunity for the flesh. And that might be confusing, but I want you to read what I put up on the screen next. It says, When we accept Christ, we walk in the freedom that Christ gives us from condemnation. However, we do not walk, from the free, we do not walk in freedom from the law of God which is completely baffling, right? It's confusing. So we're free from the law. We're not under the law. We, shouldn't, we don't need to get circumcised. We don't need to hold to all these things that the law gives us condemnation. But, and we're free from condemnation, but we're not free from the law. Does anybody feel a little confused? I mean, this should make you confused. This should not make sense. If we're free from condemnation and the law brings condemnation to all, then how are we still bound to the law? The answer is the reason is the second reason why the law is there. The law brings condemnation because it testifies to the standards of a holy God. And while we do not stand in condemnation, we do feel compelled to love God because of what he has given us. Because he first loved us, now we can love Christ. And by the love and grace of Christ, we're finally able to meet the standards and love of God properly. We are freed from our compulsion to only choose sin. And yes, we would only choose sin. If we were left to our own devices, if we were left without the influence of the Holy Spirit, if we were left without the gift that Pastor Brett had talked about on Christmas Eve, the gift of Christ, if we left that gift under the tree, we would be left to our own devices. We would, left, we would be left to break every law that God had just because that's who we are, just because that is our nature. It's our sin nature. And we'll see this on the next slide. It says, just as Christ restrained his freedom to love us, so should we restrain our freedom to love God and others. This is not under compulsion, but it's under love. Think of all that Christ was, and think of all that Christ had. Christ was literally God, and he is literally God. If Christ wanted to, he did not have to come down. If Christ wanted to, he could have destroyed the world. If Christ wanted to, the flood could have been it for us. And it, he would have been totally justified in it. Christ could have simply chosen not to die. Instead, he constrained his freedom for our sake. For the sake of our righteousness, he became sin. The law of condemnation is not the law of love, testifying on how we can love God back. Not because we earn anything, but because we desire to give him affection. See, it's a little bit different. The beauty of this is that the law is not meant to please God, but it's meant to give us human flourishing. God's law is given to us, not just to show us that we need a Savior, but it's to show us that once we're saved, what ought we to do? Once we know Christ, 
Once we have this freedom from the condemnation of the law, the law is a guidebook to show this is how you can glorify God. This is how you can love God back. Not because loving him back makes you saved, but because loving him back is what you feel compelled to do when you are. If you're not saved, you don't want to love God back. And here's the thing. If you do not love God, if you do not obey the commands of God, it is, it is fair to say that you should be questioning things. If you do not feel conviction when you sin, if you do not feel a feeling of, in your consciousness, being guided to something, being guided to God's word, being guided to a standard that you yourself cannot, cannot understand, if you feel depressed, if you feel anxious because you're doing something and you just feel bad about it, but you can't put your finger on why that's the Holy Spirit. People who have never, re people who have never read the law of the Old Testament, people who have only heard about Christ from a sermon, from Billy Graham, from Pastor Brett, from me, from Dan, from Rachel, from anyone, they still feel this compulsion when they do something wrong, and they don't understand it. And I have that sometimes, too. There's sometimes where I feel like I feel really bad, and then I find out later in the Bible, it's like, this is wrong. What I was doing, this was wrong. And so now we understand how the Reformation works. It works, the law of God works not just to show us that we need a Savior, but it's also to show us what to do once we're saved. And when we love Christ, our life is better. It becomes so much better, and we're going to see that. But the third thing that we need to understand, this is what's going to be, we understand where the water is, we understand where the can is, now we need to understand how to water. The third thing that we must understand is that for us to live in the Spirit, we must put our flesh to death. In Galatians 5, 25 to 26, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. To walk in the Spirit first means that the Holy Spirit must live inside of you. And simply put, if you're trying to reform yourself or others with God's Word without first being saved and receiving the Holy Spirit, it's like you're watering dirt. Right? There is a, there is a standard here. There is a method to this madness. And so many people don't understand this. This is a principle that many Christians fail to understand. But you can't reform someone who doesn't understand the word of God. The word of God is foolishness to those who do not know it. It's foolishness to, to those who do not know Christ. And it also sends a wrong religion. It's teaching of a wrong God. It's exactly what we were just talking about. It's the leaven in the bread. We no longer live in a nation that's Christian. And that may make us angry. It might make us sad or discouraged. But it's the truth. This nation that we live in, we are foreigners in this land. Christians and our standards are not something that is practiced everywhere. This means as foreigners in a strange land, as spiritual descendants of Abraham, we are called to bless our neighbors with the grace and truth of God. Now, don't hear me saying this. I'm not saying don't talk about sin to your unbelieving friends. Sin is an important part of the gospel, the entire, part, the entire law is the gospel. It shows you that you need a savior and what to do once you're saved. And so if you leave sin out of your presentation of the gospel, if you leave sin out of your seed planting, you're not planting seeds of the right religion. You're planting seeds of legalism or you're planting seeds of too much grace. In fact, I want you to boldly tell people about their sin. 
But when you tell people about their sin, don't leave it at their sin. Tell people about your sin. Tell people about, tell people about my sin. Tell people about Pastor Brett's sin. Because here's the thing. People think that Christians are supposed to be perfect. People think that Christians are supposed to do everything right. People think that pastors are supposed to be perfect, that pastors are supposed to do everything right. And we don't. Pastors sin all the time. Pastors need to kill the flesh day in and day out. Sometimes pastors live in the flesh. Sometimes pastors mess up. Sometimes Christians sin. Sometimes Christians mess up. But that doesn't mean that you're not saved. What it means is that you are still being saved. What it means is that you still have work to do, that you still need to be watered by other people and you need to water yourself with the word of God. So yes, talk about their sin, but talk about your sin. You can tell them my testimony. You can tell them, I'm sure Dan will tell you his testimony. You can tell them Dan's. You can tell them my father's. You can tell them Andy's. You can tell them Tammy's, Bill's, Ruth's. You tell anybody's testimony, you tell them yours. Tell them the fact that, yes, we are still sinners. But while we were still sinners, God loved us so much that he sent his son to save us. See, because when you focus too much on their sin, what you're trying to do is you're trying to reform someone who doesn't understand the process of revival. Right? You can't educate a dead body. Last week we were talking about revival being something, not just the life of a church, but a physical life, going out and reviving the souls of man. That was something that I said last week. And when we were talking about reviving the souls of man, it's important that revival, there's a reason why revival came before Reformation. Because if I sat and I tried to reform, and when we think about reform, another way that we connote reform is the idea of suits, ties, education, going to Yale, Harvard, going to college, or something like that. And so if I put a corpse in a classroom and I taught it, how much is it going to retain? Nothing. But if I revive somebody and then I start to teach them how to walk and I start to teach them how to talk and I start to teach them these things, they're going to pick it up. But to try to teach to a dead body is no different than trying to spread that false religion we were talking about earlier. If you do this, you're not providing them with the correct answer to sin. The correct answer to sin is not to know the law and to obey the law completely. The correct answer to sin is not discipline, law, and self-control. They don't need to get right with God before they come. They don't need to dress correctly. They don't need to have all the right words. They don't need to be living in a correct circumstance. What they need is they need Jesus. What they need is truth. What they need is grace. What they need is hope, peace, love, joy. What they need is that gift that we were talking about a few weeks earlier. They need to understand first Christ. And so that's why it's so important to walk in the, in the Spirit. First means that the Spirit has to live inside you. But secondly, it means that you need to be open and sensitive to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now what does it mean to be open and sensitive to the influence of the Holy Spirit? Well, once you're saved, the Spirit is in you, it'll guide you. Each person has a conscience. A conscience is not something that is unique to Christians. It is something that every person has. But the problem is, is that your conscience is corrupted. It's fallen by sin. Everybody has a different worldview. Christians have a biblical worldview. Our worldview comes from this. This is where our worldview comes from. This is what tells us what's right and wrong. This is what tells us the truth. This is what tells us what's a lie. Other people have different worldviews. And to say that other people don't have a conscience is to completely miss it. There are people out there that say 
that one thing is right and one thing is wrong. There are people out there that say that it is okay to kill somebody under X amount of circumstances. There are people that say that it is wrong to kill somebody under X amount of circumstances. It takes just one look at the political scene to see that, yes, there is unbiblical people that have a moral code. But that moral code does not mean that they're righteous. It just means that they have a moral code. To live under the influence of the Holy Spirit means that, you are, that that conscience is submitting to God's word even if it doesn't know what God's word is yet. It's that feeling of guilt and that thirst to repent and to be forgiven. In fact, it's the fear of the Lord itself is the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent to guide us and to convict us. I encourage you not to fight it or to explain it away with worldly concepts, to explain it away with this idea of religious trauma. Now, religious trauma is true. It has happened. When I was talking about pastors sinning, when I was talking about Christians sinning, Christians and pastors have hurt many, many people. But there are many people that use the idea that I've been hurt by a church or I've been hurt by a pastor for an example as to why the entire thing is wrong. To deal with their guilt. To deal with what the Holy Spirit is trying to get them back on track. The Holy Spirit guides you. He tries to influence your life. And we can use these concepts to fight it, but I ask you not. I ask you to look at your guilt. To look at the thirst you have to repent and to be forgiven and to really look at it, to embrace it with conviction and not condemnation. Now, what does it mean to embrace with conviction rather than condemnation? Condemnation means that you're done and that's it. Condemnation is what we stand in before we know Christ. Condemnation means that there's absolutely no chance, no shot. But conviction means that it is a rod guiding you back to the right path. Let it guide you to the waters of life. And we're gonna be talking about that in the third point. To walk in the spirit means you need to pattern your life after that influence that the Holy Spirit is doing onto you. So it needs to live inside of you, it needs to influence you, and then you need to pattern your life after it. When you fear the Lord, you do not fight it or try to explain it away, but you simply fear. We were talking about fear last time I preached, and there are things that we fear that drive us to sin because we don't understand who God is. But the fear of the Lord doesn't drive us to sin, it drives us to righteousness. The fear of the Lord doesn't drive us to things that destroy us like what idols do, what the fear that the world puts into us to do. But the fear of God drives us to human flourishing. It drives us to making the right calls. It drives us to doing the right things. And so I encourage you not to fight it or try to explain it away, but to embrace it. Let it guide you to the waters of life. And we talked a lot about, we talk a lot about that passage of scripture we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil, for my shepherd will guide us. His rod and his, his staff will comfort us. The rod, I believe, and this, this may be wrong, but the rod and the staff of the shepherd is the word and the spirit that the shepherd has sent to us, guiding us to the words of life, guiding us to the truth of life, guiding us to forgiveness, guiding us to repentance. When his rod and his staff comforts us, it guides us to still waters, and we find rest. The law is not meant to just condemn us and just to bring us back onto the right track, but the law is also meant to comfort us. It's meant to be there as instruction, and it's also meant to be there to help us love God better and to live our best lives. And so this, this will come up next. When we counter sensual sins, we must counter sensual sins, religious sins, interpersonal sins, and social sins with 
sensual righteousness, religious righteousness, interpersonal righteousness, and social righteousness. This is why Paul lists out all the sins that he does in that scripture passage. That scripture passage is somewhat uncomfortable, I'm sure, because I'm sure you see yourself somewhere in there. Everybody does. And this is exactly why Paul lists it, and he doesn't list it to shame us, but he lists it to hold a rod and to hold a staff up to you. He lists it so that the Holy Spirit can put you back, not to shame you, but to bring you back to that path. God was, the Holy Spirit was inspiring Paul to write this as a staff, as a guide, not as condemnation for those who are in Christ, but as conviction to bring you back into the right way of living. One of the biggest problems that we have is that we view this list like that. God has a path to sensual righteousness, religious righteousness, interpersonal righteousness, and social righteousness. That's true. And that's what we want to look at. That's what we want to pastor all over our walls. It's the fruits of the Spirit, right? Patience, kindness, joy, faithfulness, peace, goodness. And we plaster them everywhere. But Paul also plasters the ways of the flesh up as well. And I'm sure that if I asked Pastor Brett when he came back, I say, I say, hey, Pastor Brett, what I want to put on the wall is I want to talk about, I just want to put on this wall over here that um, sexual immorality and, you know, all of this, I want to put sexual immorality, drunkenness, fits of rage, just, just over here. Just, he'd probably be like, what, why? <laughs> but the reason why Paul puts it up is he puts it up as a warning sign. It might not be as pretty as the fruits of the Spirit that we want to plaster all around, but these warning signs of sin and shame are not to hurt us, but they're actually to warn us. For sensual sin or sexual sin, Paul warns about sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. And he does not do this to shame us, but he says, this is the path of the flesh, and now you need to turn back. The way that you're going is wrong, and so he guides you with the staff of the Spirit. He guides you with the staff of God's Word, saying, turn back to what actual love is. Turn back to faithfulness to whoever you're with. Turn back to gentleness and self-control with whoever you're with. For religious sins, Paul warns about idolatry, sorcery, wickedness. And he doesn't do this to shame, but he says that this is the path of the flesh. This is not who you are. So turn back now. Turn back to love, faithfulness, and goodness in your spiritual lives. For interpersonal sins or sins within yourself, Paul warns about enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, drunkenness, envy. And when he says this, he doesn't say this to shame. He says this as saying, this is the wrong path. You're on the path of the flesh, and now you need to turn back. Turn back to love, faithfulness, peace, joy, patience, goodness, and kindness in your personal lives. For social sins, Paul warns us about rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And he says, turn back. You're on the wrong path. Turn back to love, patience, faithfulness, joy, peace, goodness, and kindness. And how do you know that this applies to you? How do you know that these warning signs are good for you? How do you know that you can actually use these? Well, this is accomplished by the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and this is coming up. This is only accomplished doing these things, understanding these signs, and getting into a pattern to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit is accomplished by the guidance of the Holy Spirit who testifies to the one who perfected this, Jesus. Jesus, who was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. 
He's tempted as you are. He's tempted as I am. He endured all to be our example, to show us how not to sin, to show us how to walk according to the Spirit. He endured it all to be a propitiation, to stand in our place, to take on sin, and to give us his righteousness. And he did it to be our guide. He did us to light up God's word. And so the last thing, the, the overall point of this sermon is that Reformation is knowing and living out your condemnation in the law and life, in the spirit. So you need to know that the law condemns you. It doesn't save you. You need to know that the law doesn't save anybody, but it actually shows you that you need a savior and that what saves you is the grace of God by Christ. The gospel of Christ is cultivated. It is watered by people who are faithful like you and I. And it's cultivated to make people flourish and to make people thrive. We've been given the gift of Christ and we have chosen to unwrap it. If we are here at Faith Church, I believe that we have. We share it with others and the kingdom of God is growing. Now what? Now I ask you to reform yourselves. Now I ask you to sacrifice your freedom, freedoms that might be unpopular, freedoms that might make you look weak, freedoms that might make you look uncool, Surrender that. It requires you to clench your teeth and to read the condemnation that comes up in the law. To read the passages of Scripture that make you uncomfortable. To read the passages of Scripture that are going to put you back on the right track. It requires your tearful understanding that Jesus made it right when there truly was no way. Listen to that still, small voice of the Spirit guiding you to the waters of life with His rod, the Word. And with his spirit and with his staff of conviction. I ask you when you go to those still waters to taste and see that the Lord is good. And he's not just good because of the grace that he gives, but he's good because he provides us with his law that shows us that we are not right. But because we have the spirit, we can be made right. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Thirst no more and overflow every cup that you come across. And when you overflow it, overflow it with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fill it with the fruits of the Spirit. Fill it with the gift that you've been given. Go out and don't just plant seeds. But once those seeds are planted, love people well. Share your sin. Talk about theirs. Share a Savior. Try to reform each other. Try to live by the fruits of the Spirit. Try to live in step with the guidance that the Holy Spirit gives. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com. 